The Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. David Proton, the Safety Doc, welcoming you to the Safety Doc podcast. And this is episode 109. A shout out to John Grant and the 405 Media out of Los Angeles, California, the405media.com for broadcasting this show. Also, a thank you to Spark Radio Network, Spark Radio Network supporting the Safety Doc Podcast. So I biked on Monday. It was 71 degrees and for October, that's really good here in Wisconsin. We're down into the 30s right now. It's going to be in the 40s and windy and overcast tomorrow. We might have seen our last 70 degree day of 2019. So I cleared the schedule. I went out biking It was terrific. It always is. A lot of snakes on the road because they're going out warming themselves or getting the sun, right? So uh, you see them squirm down the road as you're biking, and it's different. A lot of caterpillars, too. Um, I took a different route this time, and I biked along the Wisconsin River past some really fancy homes, you know, with that riverfront real estate. Uh, It was nice, although... There was a point when you have to ascend from the river uh, back on to, you know, where the road is. And, and that was quite a task. I mean, I was down in first gear, you know, biking, biking back up to, to grade. So, um, but yeah, just a beautiful day. I'll probably pack the bike away for the season um, tomorrow because I need to make room for firewood. Six more cords. Had a fire tonight the first one of the season and it's toasty upstairs right now it's pretty humid actually down here and warm in the studio um looking oh my goodness 77 degrees i can tell you in about a month it's going to be probably about 65 down here and then it, it drops into the 50s it's not heated down here in the studio um so i kind of you know i kind of like that actually when it when it gets a little cooler so um I've been contemplating the future of the Safety Doc podcast. I have 109 episodes with this episode. Um, That would be five consecutive days nonstop of binge listening or watching, if you're checking this out on YouTube, of the Safety Doc podcast. So it's a lot of content, Uh, 120 hours of content, a blog entry uh, that's detailed for each show, So there's a lot of information out there, a lot of area that I've covered. So I was searching for the song, um, the theme song to the arcade game, The Black Knight. It was an arcade game from 1989. When I was in college in 1991, my friends and I, Ice Krieger, Vern, uh shaker we would go to the mall and go into the arcade and 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 just you know be playing pinball so it was it was the black knight and i posted I, am the black um, knight. I, I i remember the song from that game and the song was awesome so it's one of the reasons you played the game and you tried to keep going is so you could just have have the song it was this incredible i've got it over here you probably won't be able to hear it i'll dub it over but uh All right, hopefully I won't get a strike on that. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, it's that old MIDI stuff, you know, kind of done with synthesizers, keyboards, stuff like that. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool stuff. So, um, yeah, anyway, I posted that I... I just wish that song was out there. And somebody actually had it. <laughs> they sent it to me. How crazy is that, right? Someone saw that on Twitter. So now I have the Black Knight. Um, I will move that over into my thumb drive in my car, and it's all good, right? Um, we had a garage sale this week. Every year we have at least one, if not two. Um, sold over $900 worth of stuff at the garage sale. Last year we actually cleared 1000 um, so yeah, just getting rid of things. Um, and it's also fun because now I have time where I can be out there and, and interact with people who are, are coming to the sale. We had really nice weather, um, did it before this, this cold, um, streak, um, descended upon us. So it was, it was good. Um, I was really glad I went through my neckties and I got rid of 20 or I put 20 in the sale and they'll eventually been, be gone because I just don't wear ties much anymore. And the ties I have are kind of wide. A lot of them like Herb Tarlick WKRP ties. You don't need those anymore. Um, just posted a new testimonial up to safetyphd.com, my website, safetyphd.com. Um, I present it to the Marathon County librarians and their director posted or shared a testimonial with me that I was able to put up on the, my website. So please check that out. Um, different things here that the safety doc does. So talking about this cold weather, um, I purchased last year a few of these NFL dun, 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 um, hyperthermal shirts. So this, this is, I'm going to move back a little bit here. This is for those of you watching, right? Not for those of you listening, but this is a, a woven, um, actual shirt worn by an NFL player. Now it's not a Jersey. This is what you wear underneath a Jersey or doing practice in cold weather. So this, what I found out is I got some of these from Green Bay. I was at the pro shop on a, a day when they just they happened to, to bring out some of these these jerseys and, and we're selling them for like eleven bucks, right? These these uh, hypertherm shirts. So this is thick. It's got you know the sleeves are lined on it. It's really nice. You got it for like eleven bucks and they were gone right away. I was able to snag two. Um, but then I, I went on eBay and I found out popular teams like Green Bay. It's hard to to find these things and they're selling at a higher price if they're out there. So I'm like. Well, all of the NFL teams probably have the same contract for the, this product, right? And let's check out some teams that maybe don't have the big fan base, like Green Bay. So I'm like, all right, Baltimore, I can live with this. I, I you know, the the logo right here, right, of a Raven. Um, that's the colors of black and purple. Yeah, I, I can definitely make this work. So inside of this is this belong to, um, and I. I This is amazing, folks. Oh, here it is. All right. Whether I will edit that out or not, I don't know. Um, okay, this jersey belonged to Patrick Anwasa, and his nickname is Peanut. He's a linebacker. Okay, number 48. This is his. Okay, it was his. He's worn this for a while. So I picked this up off eBay. It was like under 20 bucks, including shipping. If you bought something like this new, it's be like over a hundred bucks. This thing is incredible. Like it's this Nike, um, it's, and you put this on, it's like a furnace. It is, it is wild, it's great. So I learned the secret there is, uh, yeah, you find the teams that, that don't have the big fan base, get the merch from there. So. Let me check out, uh, I think I've got everything kind of addressed here that I that I wanted to address. Um, so today on the show, we are going to do a virtual author event, and I'm going to do some readings from my book, School of Airs, Rethinking School Safety in America, um, and then also talk about some of the core concepts of the book. I do have two author events coming up in the next few weeks. So if you're not able to get to Wisconsin to attend those, just tune into this show. It's the next best thing, right? 
Again, this show is on YouTube. Go to safetyphd.com, click on top. All the shows are on YouTube, so you can watch as I'm going through this, the cool graphics, right? Or you can go on Podbean or Apple Podcasts. So let's talk here about school bears and the themes of this book. So um, the Taurus, that's the first theme. Second is chaos. Third is simulated annealing. And the fourth is the transference dynamic. Now you're thinking, that sounds complicated. You know, it isn't because I'm going to give it to you with passages that will bring that to life, make it tangible for you. So let's talk about what is the Taurus. Okay, the Taurus is like a bagel, okay? It's like a bagel. Um, imagine you have a bagel, you're inside of it, and you make a loop all the way around the bagel from, you know, you're, you're traveling through the inside in the doughy part, right? And then you end up back at your starting point at the top. So this that's kind of every, every day, of our lives is kind of like this this bagel. So we expect today to be similar to yesterday. We expect tomorrow to be similar to today. That is Taurus theory right there, self-similarity. We expect things to be similar. Now people say like, yeah, yesterday was the same as today. Well, we know that's not true. Nothing is ever the same. I can take two quarters and we can say, are they the same? No, they're similar. They're, they're, they have different, um, you know, composition of, of the material, different, you know, micro uh, scratches on them, things like that. They're different. They never were the same. They're, they're two different things. So, uh, but we can have similar, we're, we're used to similar things. It's where our routine comes into play. So it's the Taurus. And one of the essential parts of safety is recognizing where you are within your Taurus. So if you're in that doughy part in the center, things are probably pretty typical for you. But if things start to go wonky, if there's a blackout that goes on for, you know, more than 12 hours, or you get in a car accident or something like that, it's going to start moving you beyond the crust of your bagel and outside of that. And that's where chaos exists out there. So we'll talk about that. But yeah, so we, we try. Humans really have this, this mindset this brain wiring where we want things to be very similar. We want to recognize patterns and force patterns onto things. Um, and because of that, sometimes we don't recognize when really bad things are happening. A hundred years ago, there were, was a series of uh, fires in movie theaters and people were found in the lobbies dead. And these are people who were you know, watching, they were in the movie theater, and uh, the, they had passed other exits on their way out, uh, to, trying to make it out. So why? Because it's familiar, right? You go in through the front doors and you exit through the front doors. Think of this 100 years ago before you probably had the prominent fire exit signs that you have today. But actually, this behavior would probably be pretty similar today. People just tend to exit buildings the same way that they enter buildings. So... That's where we, we have to override um, this the Taurus sometimes and say, hey, this is we're in a chaos situation, right? If if you're in a theater and it's on fire, you got to get to the first exit. So again, human humans prefer for things to be similar. Sometimes we refuse to accept the bad news, um, and then we we just delay dealing with things. But as we delay, we also lessen the number of options we have to deal with something. So, you know, if, if the power goes out for 10 minutes, nobody panics. It's like, oh, probably go back on because most times it does. If the power's been out for 10 hours, yikes, I don't know. My freezers, are things starting to thaw out? You know, what else am I going to do? I can't, my furnace isn't running and, and so on. So the next part is, so we talk, just talked about the Taurus, right? Self-similarity, the Taurus. Chaos. What is chaos? Well, we have our bagel. It's our bagel is a Taurus. Self-similarity. It's what we know. It's what we're comfortable with. Most days are like that. The chaos is when we're outside of the bagel. We're in the space over here, somewhere else in the bakery. That is chaos. 
Um, we can recognize when we're moving out to chaos. Um, like I happened to experience that when I was in my car accident. I knew for the few seconds before I collided with the next vehicle in front of me that, hey, I'm about to enter chaos. Um, but uh, again, it's, it's something that we're outside of the bagel. We're in an area that we typically aren't used to. Um, chaos can often simplify and clarify our options but again, we need to embrace it and stop trying to fight our way back into the bagel. Like, think of that movie theater. Um, chaos. A fire breaks out. Our options, you know, let's get to the closest exit and get out. Okay. But fighting for that similarity, we would try to go back out the same way that we came in. So we have to recognize, hey, we're in chaos. We don't have, our options are simple right now. Let's get out. Okay. That is, we're going to find an exit and we're going to get out. Closest exit. So, um, simulated annealing, a term, a term taken from metallurgy. It sounds complicated, you know? Um, it was for me. When I first came across this term, Dr. Paul Rapp shared it with me and said, you know, I think some of the concepts you're talking about in your book, simulated annealing, be perfect to describe. I said, it's great, Paul, what is it? So, um, if you've ever had a flight canceled and then you've, pro you've, you've, you've processed through simulated annealing, okay, now what are my options? What are my, that my optimal outcome was I could, I had my flight book, I was going here from A to B. And now I've got to look at other suboptimal choices to try to get to my end goal. So maybe it's instead of going from point A to point B, um, I'm going to have to, to take two more stops on my flight. I'm going to have to, it's going to have to be longer in time. You know, maybe I'm going to have to get a, get a taxi cab or Uber or something like that. So these are all choices you make. And every time you make a choice, you kind of weigh what the next choices are before you. So it just, it takes um, sometimes longer, usually longer to get to your outcome with simulated annealing, but you can still get to the same outcome you thought you'd get to originally. Now, simulated annealing is just not embraced in our culture because we expect to have a linear path, a straight line from point A to point B with no deviations. And then if we do have to take a bumpy, rocky, unnavigated path to get from point A to point B, people kind of look at that and they're like, that's crazy. Like, that's a failure, right? Um, you can do better than that. It's that type of thinking you just imagine like Henry Ford inventing the car, Edison with the light bulb and, and, you know, simulated annealing is you have, you have options. Again, these, these, these options present themselves. You make a selection and then you look at what your next set of options are. And then you make a selection, you make a selection and it's okay to take different paths to get to an outcome. Sometimes that's just what you have to do. So this book kind of unteaches, you unlearn what you've been taught about this linear efficiency of going from point A to point B. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line in the opposite direction until things go crazy, right? Until we get to chaos. We have to be able to do simulated annealing. Example, another example, talk about it, write about it in the book um, is, you know, you're on, you're, uh, I did a podcast on this, but you're on a mountain and suddenly you're, you're lost. Like, um, so, you can either stay where you're at, so options you have, simulated annealing, I can stay where I'm at, I can try to climb higher and see if I can see, you know, a house or railroad tracks or road or whatever like that. Um, I can try to go back down. I'm not gonna have the, the, the same uh, vantage that I would if I was up higher. So you have to make these decisions. And what if you get up higher and then you don't see anything? Well, you've just burned calories and you're probably taking yourself further away from rescuers. So it's all part of simulated annealing. But we try to enter simulated annealing early. That's where the book helps you. <laughs> it helps you realize when you're going into chaos and that you can start processing through the options that chaos will present to you. Chaos doesn't eliminate the options. It actually clarifies and presents options to you. The book shows you how to engage with those options. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. 
powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. And finally, the transference dynamic. The transference dynamic means that what we learn about our world as kids, often through exploration, um, it will dictate how we respond to crisis situations as adults. So 100 years ago, the typical eight-year-old had a one or had a 30-mile roam range unsupervised around the house, around the farm, the property, right? 30 miles unsupervised, going through woods, stuff like that. Um, now, now, okay, that same, that same third grader, eight years old, one mile roam range. So not exploring. So when we look at 100 years ago, if, if we got into chaos, some unfamiliar setting, um, you know, if you grew up during that time and you're used to exploring, used to dealing with stuff of, okay, like, you know, the, some trees are down across the path or the water's rising, I've got to do this, this, and this. It helps you navigate. Um, the simulated kneeling it prepares you later in life when things get thrown in your path, right? Obstructions, whether they're... Um, you know, actual obstructions or, or, you know, something that happens with your career or something like that, whatever it could be. So transference dynamic, basically what we learn as kids about our environment and about safety, we, we tend to bring that out when we're stressed as adults. And that's fascinating right now because kids today, the transference dynamic is really weird. They're going to their phone tribe, their smart devices, to get a consensus on what to do. I write about that in the book. Fascinating. Fascinating. Instead of allowing kids to go on field trips today, we're allowing them to put on VR goggles and do virtual field trips around their gymnasium. So welcome to Washington, D.C., right here in our middle school. So parents are convinced it keeps kids safe, but it doesn't because it doesn't help them develop that transference dynamic or being stressed in some stressed situations of how they would then respond to things. So when that happens to them later, some stressful situation, they've already encountered a response when they were younger, they can bring that forward when they're older. So, all right, let us do some book reading. Dun, 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 dun. All right. Okay, the first the first passage some page starts on page 25. So I've highlighted out um, you know about a page and a half in some different areas. So this is chapter two. Exploration is a kind of safety drill. So the passage I'm going to read to you helps explain the Taurus. Remember our bagel? We want things to be similar in our lives. This will explain that. It's also going to explain the transference dynamic. And I'll touch on these when I'm done with this passage. Imagine you're in eighth grade. You're curious, excited, and ready for bonding experience with your peers and adventures outside your comfort zone. Even if all the adults around you seem to think the world out there is nothing but terrorist and poisoned bottles of Tylenol. We may make fun of millennials, but 1980s babies will never be capable of taking a pill that isn't safety wrapped. Although some of the grown-ups' neurotic fears have begun to infect you, the adolescent hormones that have nudged kids out of their bagels since time immemorial are still managing to flash you another message. You need to learn about this amazing world. 
However, you live in a small town where the main excitement is volleyball practice and cow tipping. True, your parents' house is near a forest preserve with hundreds of acres of woodland stretching magically in all directions. When he was your age, your dad spent weekends exploring it. However, when a girl got trapped under a falling log there 15 years ago, the local authorities called in a safety expert to assess the situation. He recommended that parents be slapped with neglect charges if they allow kids to go in alone. You are allowed to go to the playground, but it's not what it once was. When you were a toddler, there was a giant structure made of whole logs of pine in the local park. It was as tall as a two-story house, and you couldn't wait to get big enough to play on it. But just as you got tall enough, they raised it and replaced it with a prefab maze two feet off the ground and plastered with safety instructions. So you and your friends seek excitement the only way you can, playing video games from your couch. You can get an adrenaline rush, but you're never in actual danger. You're sitting inside your bagel, mainlining stress hormones. However, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Your class has an exciting trip to Washington, D.C. scheduled. Okay, it's not New York or Paris, but it is the capital of your country and larger than your current Taurus to an unimaginable degree. Your imagination fires around the idea of this trip. As a normal human adolescent, the prospect of exploring even in a chaperoned herd, it's delicious in a way you don't quite understand. This is the most exciting thing that has ever happened in your life, including your first kiss, assuming you were left unchaperoned with another adolescent. You've been starving for this. They might even convince you to enjoy the museums. And then somebody decides it's too much. Before you even know what hit you, you and your friends' parents have canceled the entire experience. Their heads are still full of 9-11 and other scares and disasters. There are statistics that could tell them that the kids are more likely to be killed by lightning at home than at every point on the D.C. trip put together, including touring the White House. But your well-meaning parents have convinced each other and the school it's too dangerous for 13-year-olds with chaperones to tour national monuments during the daytime. In a blink of an eye, you're stuck at home, no parole again. How would that feel? I would feel like I was being robbed. These kids had every right to be beside themselves. All right, that actually happened in a school district outside of Cleveland, Ohio in 2017. Okay, so the Taurus, the Taurus, self-similarity. That yesterday, today is similar to yesterday, tomorrow will be similar today. So as parents are trying to control the experiences of their kids, they control that torus. They keep that torus small. They keep that bagel small. The kids aren't getting close to the crust. They're not getting into uncomfortable zones, areas they haven't been before, and certainly not out into chaos. And the transference dynamic. So if you haven't experienced traveling to a bigger area, um, navigating, negotiating uh, environments that you are not used to, um, how is that going to manifest when you, you're an adult and you're in some place that you're not used to, or you're, you're taking a trip, you're taking a flight, whatever, um, that's going to be possibly the first time that you're going to engage in things that are outside of that crust of the bagel out there a little bit in that unknown, not really far out in the cast, but that unknown zone. So, yeah, we just talked about exploration is a kind of safety drill. Let's move on. So when I highlighted this, I have several highlighters, all right? I have a lot. And... The one I picked was actually like a freebie that was given out somewhere. So it highlighted in kind of this odd yellow color, not the nice fluorescent color, I'd hope, but it is what it is. I'm not going to highlight a second book. So 
All right, let's move on to page 59. Part three, drill fidelity. This is embedded within chapter 10. I'm going to use this passage to help us understand chaos and simulated annealing. And here we go. Drill fidelity. The fire alarms at a school for blind children went off five minutes into lunch on a Friday. Staff and students were efficiently exiting the building, even though it meant abandoning their lunch trays. Nobody conducts a drill during lunchtime or for that matter as students arrive or depart or go to recess or during assemblies or grandparents' day. So nobody knew quite what to think. Moments later, sirens and air horns penetrated the building as aerials, pumpers, and rescue trucks were rumbling down our street. The cat was out of the bag. This was authentic, a fire at the school for the blind. The fire department made sure the building had been cleared. They then sought the ranking administrator and head of maintenance to debrief them on their assessment of the situation and also to obtain information about the building. That didn't take long. The firefighters went about their business and staff and students waited at the established perimeter. There was no need to activate some complex multi-step safety response plan or go deep into layers of the school instant command structure. It was a remarkably beautiful warm day. A second alarm brought additional firefighters and apparatus to the school. Firefighters needed to ventilate smoke from the building and diligently assess the roof and vents for smoldering debris. An hour later, the incident was over. Firefighters departed. The maintenance crew worked to remove a roasted industrial dryer from the school and kids were on their way home. Buses that normally pick kids up at school had staged a block away. Not a big deal. Now, a few things to note. Nobody would ever recommend conducting a spontaneous safety drill five minutes into lunch on a Friday at the School for the Blind. Or, for that matter, any other school. When do fire drills happen? During good weather. Run a fire drill in the rain, and you'll draw the ire of parents, staff, and students. The following week, the principal and a teacher met with four separate groups composed of a total of six to eight students and staff. Each group met for 40 minutes in the conference room. They asked them about the fire. What they did, what they thought, what went well, what didn't go well. A staffer took four pages of notes for each session and then coded them. This is called qualitative interviewing, information gathering, and then finding themes. It blows surveys out of the water. Staff and students stated that the alarm was not frightening, although it was peculiar to have it go off when it did. They also said because they drilled often, they knew what to do. But this wasn't as linear as it appears. Not everyone was in the lunchroom. Some were in the hallways. What did they do? They found doors close to them and exited the building and then proceeded to the perimeters. One added, we knew it was best to get out of the building and then get to the safe areas, which meant walking across grass or so on. Remember, we are talking about staff as students that are blind or have significant visual disabilities. But this process of convening small groups after safety drills was something that school was used to. And students already knew that in a fire alarm, they were to find the closest exit. And if it was a lockdown drill, to get behind the closest door. So standing outside for an hour wasn't a gripe for anyone. But people in each group stated that after 30 minutes, they wished they had been told what was going on. Just imagine being blind and hearing and feeling as the concrete vibrated under your feet as another pumper rolls up to the school. Okay, I was there when that happened. And chaos, right? It's a chaotic event. It's an authentic fire at the School for the Blind. So students are outside of their, their bagel. They're needing to get out of the building. Apparatus are arriving 
we're in a state of chaos. It's simplifying options though, right? Get out of the building. Get out of the building and find your perimeter. Those are your options. Simulated annealing means things aren't always a straight line. So yeah, if you're in the lunchroom, we typically don't drill. We never drill if you're in the lunchroom or if you're in the hallways. So you've got to figure out what else to do. Well, maybe I can get to an exit, but it's not going to get me toward the perimeter sidewalk. So I might have to get to that exit and then find my way across the lawn or something like that. I might have to, to go down a different hallway to get to an exit from where I'm at. So this whole thing of, of I have to take different steps. I have to do different things to get me to my outcome. Simulated annealing, which students and staff did to get out of the building because they weren't used to evacuating the building, get in the lunchroom or in the hallways. It's completely, uh, <laughs> completely accurate that most drills happen during uh, very controlled situations. They happen during second hour, um, you know, 15 minutes in or on days when it's sunny outside. So that's when drills happen. That's when exercises tend to happen. So it's also a good point driven home in the book that we need to drill. We need to do exercises at different times of the day in different contexts. Kids being dropped off in the morning, kids out at recess, things like that. A must-read for parents, teachers, and taxpayers. Dr. David Perodin has written the most honest book about the $3 billion school safety industrial complex. Attorney James Sibley proclaims, A brave demonstration of speaking truth to power. School of Errors rips the lid off the billion-dollar school safety industry. Using real-world examples of successful responses in desperate situations, David contrasts the expensive window dressings pitched to panic parents with the inexpensive and effective approaches proven to actually work. Read this book before you let your school waste another precious dollar on meaningless safety theater. Buy the international bestseller, School of Errors, Rethinking School Safety in America, now at Barnes & Noble or Amazon. All right. Let's go with Chapter 12. This is going to get at chaos. The right way to conduct a drill, critical decision-making in a non-linear world. So I had the opportunity to be a guest on the Wait What If podcast hosted by Kevin Sullivan. Kevin is a war veteran. I'll talk about that in this, this passage. Um, and he gives an account of basically 60 seconds of his life when he was on a tarmac in Iraq that exemplifies what it's like to instantly go from your bagel, your Taurus, right? Your self-similarity to be tossed out at high speed into the space beyond the bagel, out there in the chaos, like way out there, in just like snap of a finger is quick, okay? Significant, significant. So this is what it's like, okay? This is incredible. Kevin shared this. Here we go. What does your brain really sound like when the Taurus explodes? Kevin Sullivan of the Wait What If podcast is a military veteran and finished his officer training a couple of weeks before September 11th, 2001. He spent three tours in Iraq before a combat injury took him from the battlefield and into the classroom where he became a physician's assistant. Kevin shared a time when he was under heavy shelling while on a runway. Military scientists expect pounce on soldiers to apply what they learned from drills and models. This phenomena is known as selecting the available heuristic or decision-making shortcut. And it often fails as brains are overrun with input stimuli and flailing to find some recognizable pattern, some anchor from which to base the next move. Per Kevin, the following action and inner dialogue unfolded in just a few seconds. 
I experienced the boom. Boom! I remember feeling it more than hearing it. Then there was a large fireball. I don't remember specifically thinking what's going on now, but I'm sure that's what I was thinking. When you watch a war movie, you see explosions, you know exactly what it is because you're prepared to experience it. You're in a war movie, right? But when you're just doing your job, when wherever, whatever it might be, and the day seems like any other day, and within moments, the mundane is interrupted with boom, followed by a fireball and a distant sounding clacks, and your brain does some gymnastics to make sense of it all. Did someone back a truck into a plane? Is a trash truck knocking around a dumpster? Why is there a fireball? Oh, wait, I think someone's shelling us. No, I'm in Iraq. Someone is definitely shelling us. Wow, this is kind of exciting. I might die. Wait, don't think of that. What should I do? Should I draw my gun? Who would I shoot at? The sky will run over here. Boom, nope, I'll go back to my plane. Boom, you're out in the open, dummy. Get cover. Wait, my crew's back in the plane. I need to run to the plane. Wow. Seconds. So, let's come back to chaos. All the stimuli is coming in, right? You're in your bagel, your typical day, and then just things go crazy. And you're overloaded and trying to process stimuli. And we talked about heuristics. I wrote about heuristics. Heuristics choices. It actually goes into simulated annealing, too. So we talk about chaos and simulated annealing. What do you do? What's your next step? What's your step after that? What are the options available to you? Kevin's trying to process through this as he's, as he's, he's trying to make sense of this input. Because remember... He's in Iraq. Like, this should be obvious, we're thinking, right? But it's kind of like the, the movie theaters. Is we, we try, our brains are programmed to try to force that override button of saying, this will, something's not right, but it'll probably come back to normal. It's probably a trash truck, you know, just knocking around a, a dumpster, something like that. So you lose seconds. You lose seconds. So here, here's an activity that um, actually when I, when I present it to the librarians uh, on September 20th, one of the, the employees um, met with me afterwards and shared a, a story that I'm going to share with you right now. So he was a, a, an Air Force veteran and then also a pilot and had worked um, for an airline and he said, you know, there, there's an example we, we were taught during um, Air Force training. And he said, I think it, it applies to what you're talking about here with chaos, recognizing chaos, and being able to then process, accept chaos, embrace chaos, and function within it. He said, here's the story. Um, a few, this guy and a, and a couple of his, his buddies, you know, in the Air Force were walking around a hallway. So they're going down a hallway, take a right or whatever. And there is a, a man who is pinned up against the wall by several sheets of drywall. So let's say like 20 sheets of drywall, right? So however much that weighs, but it weighs a lot. So it's a narrow hallway, concrete both sides, and this guy is pinned up against a wall. So immediately they rush over, these three guys rush over, and they try to take these, these 20 big sheets of, of drywall that are tilted up against this guy, pinning him against the wall. They all start to try to push these off of him. So they're going to basically push them so they would go up against the other wall where this guy isn't at. Um, but it's not successful because the drywall weighs too much to do that. And, and the angle it's at, um, it, they're unable to do that. And suddenly, one of the guys says, let's move them two sheets at a time. So again, these are big pieces of drywall. So they move them two sheets at a time. You know, A minute later, they're able to free this guy. So the guy actually was never who was pinned. That was... Um, a demonstration. So the drywall was being supported by by something around him. He wasn't actually pinned up by by this drywall, but um, there was an observation that was happening of how these three uh, guys in the Air Force would respond to this. And of course, the correct response that would solve this would be to move the drywall, you know, two three sheets at a time, um, to to get it off because you're not going to be able to physically have the strength to get this whole composite of drywall off. So the measurement right there is how long it took 
to realize, hey, the way that we're, we're doing this, we have to have some different approach to it. So you're suddenly thrust into chaos. They come around the corner. This guy's pinned. Could be, you know, life-threatening against the wall. And so you're in chaos, and you, and you go to what you think is, is the appropriate response that's trying to move all of this drywall off. Um, but then, how, you know, you have to give it a try, right? You don't, you don't know. But then how long does it take you before you realize the way we're going to solve this is by moving two sheets at a time? So it's that time. Was that 15 seconds? Was it 8 seconds? Was it 30 seconds? What was it? You want to shorten the distance, shorten that time. So you immediately can kick into your simulated annealing or your suboptimal outcomes of saying, okay, this isn't working. What's our next step? Versus like, oh, we just, on a count of three, like everybody put more effort into it or this. And saying it's engaging your brain, your heuristics. Think smarter. Look at your options before you and solve the problems. I thought that was a fascinating story. All right. Let's, uh, let's fire up the beginning of Black Knight here. I am the Black Knight. Whoa! I am the Black Knight. All right. I don't need any strikes, and I don't need this video to be monetized. Actually, if it was monetized by the person that did the Black Knight theme song, I wouldn't be upset with that at all. I'd be fine. I'd be good. All right. Let us move into um, the next reading. This is chapter 21, page 105. Transitioning into chaos, how increasing the noise increases options up to a point. So we're going to talk about preserving the torus. Remember your bagel, your self-similarity. We're going to talk about simulated annealing of looking at the options that are before you using those options to get to your outcome. All right, here we go. This is a short one. You truly are a snowflake. Everyone has their own pattern of impulses when it comes to dealing with chaos. Some people are wired to deny it until they can't do anything about it. This is embodied by a scene in the 1983 movie The Day After in which a mother frantically attends to tidying her house as her husband is yelling for her to get into the cellar due to the incoming nuclear missiles. She has refused to exit her Taurus as the horrific image of the pending chaos has overwhelmed her capacity for rational thought. The magnitude of the phenomena of the 9-11 Twin Towers attacks was so huge that even the most stolid eventually admitted, hey, I'm not going to Starbucks this morning, but those most able to survive were those who mentally threw out their plans the minute they heard the crash. The people who did well on 9-11 are the people who immediately realized that today's plan, agenda, and schedule were gone. A subtler version of the phenomena happens at airports when there are delays. Some people freak out and don't know what to do besides rail and complain. Other people gradually realize if they sit and wait, they will miss appointments, family events, the concert they were traveling to see, or if they're going home, the cat sitter needs to be rescheduled and the dry cleaning has to wait another day to be picked up. What are your options? Do not lock into a local decision. Chaos liberates you from conventionalities of behavior. Take a different flight and visit a different city and work your way to your destination from there. That's the heuristic. Inject noise. Another example is Apollo 13. Within moments, flight command said, okay, we're not going to the moon. We have to construct an alternative flight plan. We have to work the problem. At a fairly high level of chaos, the plan has to go out the window. We can see this as terrifying, or we can choose to see it as a chance to pick a new crazy option if we want to stay alive. Fun? However, at an even higher level of chaos, a state that rarely lasts for long, the opposite happens. All of your choices are pretty much eliminated, except for freeze and die, or run away from the collapsing building. This too can be liberating instead of being freed to make new choices. This level of chaos frees you from having to make any choices at all. Run that way. So again, our Taurus, um, 
trying to preserve our Taurus, recognizing when we're outside the course, Taurus. So Apollo 13, terrific example of that. Um, you know, everything is, is plotted out of every minute of the flight. And then suddenly you have to now work the problem. Something happened that you had no contingency for, that you didn't have any planning for. It happens. You're now in chaos. You function in chaos. You work the problem. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. last one though okay page 145 politics so this we're going to touch on politics and who's in charge of school safety a little bit outside of our main themes here but some questions that everybody has right who's in charge of school safety and how do politics influence safety what's rhetoric versus reality so gets uh, addressed right here here we go Bollards have been deployed in the fight against terrorism for several years, mainly around population-dense areas such as arenas and stadiums. But the Nice and London truck attacks have fast-tracked the process to a ridiculous degree. Bollards are popping up across the world like an elephant graveyard, slowly emerging from sandy soil. They are now largely standard fixtures for new school buildings, at least in front of the main entrance and are included as retrofits to existing buildings. A search for bollards on Amazon returned hundreds of options. Some were even marketed as a hybrid of artwork and bollard, a little sculpture to plant in front of your school that's also supposed to stop a truck full of fertilizer. Some schools paint them up to look like oversized pencils sticking out of the pavement. Cute, but it's just a hat on a bad hair day. Bollards aren't the goofy obstacle you can spend Money on them, I guess they're not the only one, right? You can also get a highly decorative 3,000-pound cement flower planter barrier. They look particularly post-apocalyptic in the winter. It's unnerving how many of these things resemble open caskets. Even an 85-year-old retired librarian made that observation when out for a Sunday drive. To use another World War II comparison, our schoolyards now look like the beaches of Normandy on the eve of D-Day bristling with contraptions sticking out of the ground. And how did that defense work out for the Germans? It's unchecked and sandy, but it's visible, and that's what parents want. Safety they can see, safety they can touch or kick with a foot. It's concrete. So what if it doesn't work? However, you can point to a school safety assessment that used any evidence to rank bullards or flower planters in the top tier of priorities. I, I don't think so. Good luck. The comprehensive safety assessment conducted by an unbiased safety expert, not a vendor, will always place communication systems, youth mental health, threat input, identification, and reporting systems before bollards. The reality is that nobody is going to drive a vehicle through the front doors of a school, even if they want it to. The door to one local school that stuck one in there was already surrounded by a stumpy pillared portico. Maybe a professional driver could get a gremlin in there if he was lucky the bollards look protective and they were protecting the students from a near impossible occurrence while mopping up funds that could have gone to something useful more terrorism benchmarking if it happened there it can happen here if anything they're going to cause injuries 
How would you like to be a student on crutches or in a wheelchair navigating that portico? They will also make it harder to shovel in front of the main door during winter, allowing melted snow to refreeze and create slippery patches. Yeah, I see areas by main entrances of buildings. Hmm. Meanwhile, take a look at the wide open sidewalk in front of those bollards. Another school nearby widen the sidewalk in back of the building to make it easier to stage students for their bus pickups at the end of the day. That sidewalk is about the width of a truck, and there isn't a bollard in sight. It's almost as though they only take preventive measures when they are convenient and they look good. Today's safety solutions that are not well considered could become tomorrow's safety problems. Bollards work in that they stop vehicles, but as a fortification measure, they fall short unless you wrap these things around every building, every playground, and so on, which is counterproductive in some laughably predictive ways. Well, it isn't so funny if you die. Peppering bike paths with bollards has resulted in documented deaths and severe injuries from riders who've collided with these intrusive features, especially at night. In his article, The Trail Bollard Hazard, experienced bicyclist Pete Medic describes the damage bollards can do. I've had a friend die from injuries he suffered as a result of a bollard crash. Another friend was riding with her brother who also died from bollard crash injuries. I rode upon the scene of another bollard crash that bloodied a man's face. And of course, I had my close call all on the same trail. So why are perceptive cyclists like Medic crashing into bollards? Here's one reason. Per the Federal Highway Transportation Administration, bollards are involved in second user crashes where the first user hides the bollard until it's too late to avoid it even if the first user is adequate sight distance. These crashes can produce serious or incapacitating injuries. This can happen to pedestrians as well as bicyclists or other high-speed users. So by all means, we would want an emergency vehicle to cleanly travel over a public recreation path. What if a jogger collapsed? What if a rollerblader dodged a squirrel and tumbled her way to a fractured leg? Try to imagine speedwalking rescuers weaving a stretcher between sets of bollards and onlookers. Hopefully the paramedics played plenty of Frogger when they were kids or read books about the sea and hawk-eyed barrelmen in the crow's nest yelling the location of rocky formations off the starboard side. See how solving one problem that really wasn't a problem to start with creates a cascade effect of new, real problems. Whoa. So I do have a, a picture in the book on uh, page 147 here in chapter 28. I took that. It's my, it's my daughter's school at the time. They had some money, safety grant money, and they used it to put in some bollards in the front. Not a good use of money. So the question you want to ask is, how's your public address system? Most principals say it's not sufficient. We can't be heard in all of the buildings. How about your two-way radios? We could use more. We can't hear them out on the playground. Those are areas you want to invest in first, but because bollards are visible, right? You can go up and you can kick one and feel it. It's tangible safety, customer perceived value. It's what parents want. It's what I write about there in chapter 28. All right, this is Dr. David Proden. Thank you for being with me for this author event for my book, School of Errors, Rethinking School Safety in America. Check it out on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any place that probably sells books or can get you a book, you can find it, right? It's great. School safety, personal safety, understanding the Taurus. It's going to help you out. Yeah, I just want to cash this check real quick. Okay, yeah, sure. That's something I can help you out with. Okay, let's take a look here. I'm sorry, what did you get this check for? I got it for working hard and then someone underpaid me for it. If you could just cash it, that'd be great. Okay, okay, sure, sure. Um, it looks like this check is from Texas. Were you in Texas? Yeah, I know where the check is from. I had it before you, remember? Okay, okay. This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perotin. 
Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Broden on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. I am the Black Knight.